0: Thanks very much. Uh, I like it that it's not so sincerely so crowded because I hope you will not be disappointed. This time, I really want to do in a very naive way what the title says, some very naive reflections on where we maybe find utopian, non-utopian, whatever traces of what retroactively may we have been beginning of a a communist uh, culture. So just if some of you want to skip some of the talks, I want to be honest and tell you of some changes, of course. So forgot about what you read uh, uh, on the web. We always do. Yeah, but uh, nonetheless, I want to be fair. And uh, Okay, today I will focus on different utopian visions of from everyday life of communism, starting with, maybe this will moderately amuse you, at least it amuses me. I uh, read a good text on, uh, on you know, this for me extremely boring uh, TV channels like uh, National Geographic, Animal Kingdom, and so on. Why this fascination with animal community? And then, going further in the usual way, okay, I end with, of course, praising totalitarian discipline. Uh, Tomorrow uh, I will do, and this is a new domain in my bluffing, tomorrow I will do architecture. It's quite well. By chance I was invited to an architectural convention and I wanted to decline, but then I mean, details like this make you believe that maybe God exists, because at the very point, literally, I'm not kidding, it really made me afraid, like what there is secret, master, Literally, when I was approaching my table with my computer on to say no, a bell rang in my apartment, and somebody brought me a present from a colleague, a book on architecture, and I immediately saw that's where I can steal all the ideas (laughs) no it's a good book no it's purely just descriptive it's about uh, this how do you call them usually like Queen Elizabeth Hall here this performance arts venues places where as they put it they should be anti elitist, not only the concert hall but also a cafeteria a bookstore and so on and I discovered that there are so many interesting for everything that is falls in our society almost can be located there. It's supposed to be a public space, but it's always, in a way, redoubled. There is another, like, shelter, you know, You, as they put it in this, uh, their jargon, skin gets detached from the body and so on. And uh, also this absurdity of, uh, for example, uh, my dream is to have a building which would exist just of these secondary approach spaces. Like, the idea came to me from uh, reading, you know, that famous Benjamin passage where he describes the Garnier Opera in Paris and claims that the stair, that the big stair is the true fox. Who cares about performance there? Ladies display their... Uh, their dresses, gentlemen, for a cigar, a drink, whatever, that, that's big. And then then, an architect friend gave me a wonderful idea. He said, what's the big fuss in New York? We have a big building, which is exactly this. It's Guggenheim. If you were there, it's just one big <laughs> stair down. And I claim that the proper way to perceive Guggenheim is to reduce paintings there just to a secondary decoration. It's a place where you go up to slowly walk down and talk and so on. So again, what's the ideology there? I, I think, uh, again, it is quite incredible. I will show you some pictures. Why this interests me? Because this is, I claim, ideology its purest today. It's interesting. I got interested in what goes on in architecture. Because architecture, let's not forget, this is where they screw us up. I mean, my god. They, they construct, they form the very space where we spend all the time. And it's interesting how the architecture, which is architecture, how should I put it, for the media to be reflected, architecture which is built, but it's built so that later books are written about it. This is maybe two, three percent, but this is what everyone talks about, like the big name, but there are others, name them, even I learned some of these names, Frank uh, Gehry, Kohlhaas, Liebeskind, and so on. But I claim this is architecture, just pure ideology. And here I part even from my good friend Fred Jensen, who thinks that, for example, Gary can be redeemed? I think no. I think the first communist move here would be forget about these guys who do these symbolic places which should revitalize the city. What it interests me are two things. First, what about those ninety-five percent even more anonymous architects who just do it. Nobody even notices it. And even more interesting. And now I ask my friends. I was told that some studies are made about architecture in favelas, in slums. Because contrary to what you think, it's not pure utilitarianism there. It's not you just grab what you have, some old uh, corroded metal or whatever. No, it's uh, what makes it so interesting. And if there was an almost transcendental experience that I had in at this, in Melbourne, in Australia, this architectural conference. It was how uh, I got engaged in a debate with a guy who wanted to be a leftist, but turned out to be what I call liberal communist leftist, this extremely rich but progressive, you know, like, if I may be a little bit nasty, probably similar as the guys I was told, I don't know their name, that when we had, a couple of months ago, the communism conference, Some group of architects protested. No, how can you charge so much? And then we did a little bit KGB. (laughs) Inquiry and discovered, I mean, of course, extra rich and so on and so on, they can well they can afford to protest, no, because they are used to conferences where you have good George Soros and other sponsors, so they don't need uh, the participants to pay. Okay. So one of the he wanted to do the politically correct proper thing so he presented two images as extreme good extreme bad a simple a simple water pump simple just utilitarian and an extremely kitschy golden gold water pipe and he said you see we should move as far away as possible from this and then i exploded i told him wait a minute were you ever in a favela the moment they love this extremely vulgar kitsch in favelas, if they can get it. On the contrary, it's rich people who like to play this simple functionality and so on and so on. So again, it's full of ideology. This is tomorrow. Then, uh, <laughs> then uh, on uh, Wednesday, we will do something for which I hope you will have some patience, but it's my favourite. But, like, my, all my love is there, Wagner, to convince you that Wagner was struggling with a communist project. Of course, it's a total rehabilitation of Wagner. I will show you some clips and so on. I will simply focus on a big problem, that like, if you are not a little bit of Wagnerian, skip it. What really happens at the end of the of the Twilight of Gods? No, Because forget about all these usual stories that Wagner-Pesch from Feuerbach and Bakunin from some kind of naive revolutionary position to conservative Schopenhauer position. It's not true. One should read Wagner maybe what really happens there. I will try to answer this. Then, the last two days, Thursday, Friday, first I will try to approach this traumatic topic for which I am often criticized about... uh, let's call it very naively, communism and ethnicity, universality, multiculturalism, and so on, and so on. All this problem, to which obviously I always have, again and again, have to return, <coughs> sorry, of, uh, multiculturalism, rather, ethnicity, capitalism, and universality, and then, quite appropriately, the last session I propose to do it on Apocalypse on versions of apocalypse today and on how I'm more and more convinced the radical left should adopt apocalyptic language. Of course, how I put it uh, here? This is practically the only thing where I agree with Vatimo. I don't agree with his idea of first it was weak thought, then it was weak communism. I don't buy that. And maybe you know the joke I told him when you remember at the communism conference, no, he presented a talk with communism. I told him the only way I'm ready to accept that is that. If he admits that because communism is weak, it needs, it needs an especially strong secret police and so on to protect it. it you know. But uh, I I am for weak apocalyptism. Because it. Say, I'm not saying tomorrow, doomsday, or whatever, I am, what I am saying is that, is that the only way to, I see, to revitalize radical thought is to simply at different levels as many as possible in our social development to, uh, to isolate some at different levels, some kind of apocalyptic zero point. It can be ecological catastrophe or whatever, which we are approaching and then how to counteract it. And uh, here I uh, I even noticed, this is why I still like those apocalyptic films. I'm quite serious, I've already written about this years ago. The most beautiful part of these films, for me is how, maybe you noticed it if you look at them carefully, how. And this, for me, the proper charm, not those spectacular images of destruction, but how then usually a narrow but authentic new community, almost a communist community, is born. Like, I've seen the one, and I've heard so many bad things about the film that I was quite surprised how good is the film. Maybe you also skipped it because, again, the rumor, uh, how do you call it? Mouth by ear. I always say it wrongly. I've seen mouth by mouth or whatever. The rumor is that it's a failure. So, you know, based on Saramago novel, Blindness. I think it's quite a nice film and very nice how from all that, it's as if they go through this extreme almost animal egotism and then slowly a community is built. I think that here we should look for communist dreams. So now, you know when to come. I repeat it, today, Utopia, tomorrow, Architecture, Wednesday, Wagner, the problem of ethnicity, universality, multiculturalism, Thursday. Also, it will be, the last two will be then more directly political, and Apocalypse and a communist dream on Friday. So, OK, let me begin. During a public debate with, and this is one of the unfortunate events where I had to participate, During a public debate with Bernard-Henri Lévy last fall, I think, at New York Public Library, I debated with him, he made a perfect case for liberal tolerance. Something like, would you not like to live in a society where you can make fun of the predominant religion without the fear of being killed for it, where women are free to dress the way they like and choose a man they love, the usual anti-Islamic line of thought. While I made a similarly pathetic case for communism with the growing food crisis, ecological crisis, uncertainty how to deal with intellectual property and biogenetics, and so on? Is there not a need to find a new way of collective action which radically differs from market activity as well as from state administration? And I noticed, as you probably already noticed, that something was terribly wrong here. We both put it in such abstract, simplified way that we ended up totally agreeing with each other. what I, mean, I say? No, I don't want women to dress the way they dress. No, you shouldn't make fun of religion or what. And even he, you can check it. I think it's available, that part. I never, uh, I got into a one-week depression if I see myself on screen, but on YouTube somebody told me this part is where he even, he said, bernard Rilevi Lévy, he, the liberal anti-communist proponent of, he said, wait a minute, if this is a communism, I am a communist. No, So when I said, when I described communism in such a way that bernard Rilevi Lévy agrees with it, no, then something is wrong. What is wrong? Here I think we find ideology. Ideology is precisely this living out of, how should I call it, uh, uh, background noise, which gives a specific density to these abstract statements. You know, ideology is precisely this violent reduction. When you say, wouldn't, for example, when you defend the West against the third world, primitive fundamentalist, and you simplify it in this way, when you say, but wouldn't you like to live in this, and so on, and so on, you know, this is how ideology blackmails you. Of course, who would say no to this? So, this is what I want to focus on, because I think that this living out of the background noise which gives uh, provides the specific taste, as it were, of what is communism much more than just what I said, what is liberal tolerance much more than when than this pathetic uh, description by Bernard-Henri This, I think, is maybe utopia at its most elementary. How? Let me begin with a book, maybe I already mentioned it here, but it's worth reading. I think it's reading. I think it's one of the beautiful books written recently. Alan Weissman, The World Without Us, published last year by Picador. It offers this book a vision of what would have happened if humanity, and only humanity, were suddenly to disappear from the earth. Natural diversity blooming again, nature gradually regaining human artifacts, and so on. We humans are here reduced to a pure disembodied gaze, observing our own absence. And as Lacan pointed out, this is the fundamental subjective position of fantasy to be reduced to a gaze which observes the world in the condition of the subject's non-existence, like the fantasy of witnessing the act of one's own conception, the parental copulation, or the act of witnessing one's own funeral, like Tom Stoyer and Huckfield. Along the same lines, a jealous child likes to indulge in the fantasy of imagining how his parents would react to his own death, putting at stake his own accents. this Isn't this the most elementary sadistic fantasy? You dream about how, ah, but when I disappear and then you imagine them crying or whatever. <laughs> the world without us is thus a fantasy at its purest, witnessing the earth itself retaining its, let's call it naively pre state of innocence before we humans spoiled it with our hubris. The irony is that the most prominent example of, in this book, comes from, and I like this dialectical paradox, you know what is his example where he describes this blooming of nature in the absence of humanity? Chernobyl. He went there and, uh, like, because there we can really see for, what's now, almost, I think 20 years, a little bit more, what happened there without human human, uh, presence. We find exactly the same structure I claim in the very heart of Utopia. In Frenzy, the first novella, short novel, of the volume Her Body Knows, David Grossman talks about jealousy. He, I think, produces a masterpiece which displays the basic, phantasmatic coordinates of this notion. I will talk later, if I will have time, not today, on the other ideological side of this, Grossman. this humanitarian against war israeli i respect him for this but there is a limitation uh, the point of his writing stories about private troubles love relations and so on in today's israel is of course can't you see we israeli are people like others we dream about peace we are not military and so on and so on and i claim that This ideology of we are humans like you is maybe the form of ideology today. I don't know if you saw it, you should see this a good counterpoison, as it were, to to Shoah, Uh, Claude Landsman's "Tal," his five hour, okay, it's not seven this time, only five hour documentary on Israeli defense forces. And it's all one big variation of No, the the Israeli army is not a military, perfect military machine. They are people like us. They cry, they urinate in their pants when under attack. They are human, as one hero repeats again and again, uh, 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 war is not in our dreams, and so on. So uh, that's the other side of Grossman. But here, I think he does propose a masterpiece on jealousy. In jealousy, that's his thesis, the subject creates or imagines a paradise, a utopia of full jouissance, from which he or she is excluded. And I think the same applies to what we can call political jealousy. From anti-Semitic fantasies about the excessive enjoyment of the Jews, to the Christian fundamentalist fantasies about the weird sexual practices of gays and lesbians, to the fantasies about what Arabs are doing in their closed circles, and so on, and so on. And uh, we should also be very precise here. It's too easy to say we just project into it our own fantasies. No, no, no. You know, the slightly more traumatic, unpleasant thing is that we don't project it. People are really doing all that. (laughs) I think it's way too simple, this traditional Marxist of some kind of Marxist psychology idea, we just project our trauma. No, the point is that uh, it's real. That this this also tells us a lot, I think, about the position of the spectator in cinema. We are, by definition, there jealous subject, jealous spectator, excluded from the scene we are watching. And now I come to my first point, which I announced. I think. This notion of jealousy plays a crucial role in our relationship to what we bombastically tend to call animal kingdom. I would like to give you a couple of quotes from a guy who is an old Lacanian, uh, Gerard Weitzmann. I totally disagree with him politically, but here he made a nice analysis. It's from the last issue of Lacanian Inc., the small New York Lacanian journal, The Animals That Treat Us Badly. Here is a quote from his own, uh, referring to his own personal experience. Sorry, I hope this works. A whole team of tourists traverses the savanna back and forth, arrives on the scene with an engine backfiring and a dust cloud looming to plant themselves 20 meters from three big bad lions. And nothing as if we didn't exist. Such was my definitive experience with the animal world, a thorough disenchantment, an encounter of the zero type. We do not share animal space. We invade their territory or we cross over it, but we never meet them. The zoo, the circus, state parks, hunting grounds, television channels, consecrated to animals, protection societies, nature museums, animal houses, We multiply the places, the occasions, or the modes of encounter. But without a doubt, there is no real relationship between man and animal. We come upon them and we watch them pass. That's all that's left for us to do. Watch and look. Of course, we watch them with eyes wide open. Humanity passes its time watching the animals. We have invented all kinds of devices expressly for the purpose. We never grow tired of it. No doubt, they represent for us a perfect world. Something strange, different from our own, from our uncertain, screwed up, chaotic mess of a world. All of which makes the animal world look that much better. Sometimes it seems so foreign that we stand before their perfection perfection, and we are stupefied and mute stricken. And despite our sincere wishes, we wonder whether we could ever be like them, ever become so marvelous a society as have the ants and the penguins where everyone has his place, where everyone is in his place, and where everyone knows and does exactly as he must, so that everything can keep on in its proper place. So that society can perpetuate itself unchanged, indefinitely, the same and infinitely perfect. We've had a hard time of it, finding our places. After the disasters of the 20th century, the animal societies seem to have become the ideal." End of quote. So the fact that the wild park animals ignore the intruding tourists is crucial. It points towards a double movement of derealization, which characterizes utopian fantasies. The scene presented is a fantasy, even if it really happens, as is the case here. And we, the participants, de-realize ourselves. We reduce ourselves to pure, decentralized gaze ignored by the objects of the gaze, as if we are not part of the reality we observe, disturbing the wildlife park run of things with our vehicle, as if we are a mere spectral presence unseen by the living beings in the park. An external observers of the paradise barred to us, we assume the same position as the unfortunate Stella Dallas in the final scene of the Hollywood melodrama of the same name. From, you you remember, this is the bad mother who sacrifices herself for the daughter. The daughter wants to marry a rich guy. She's so good that she knows that the daughter will find this difficult if she will feel that she's abandoning her mother. So the mother, just to make herself disgusting to her daughter, behaves disgustingly, socially, uh, sexually promiscuous, and so on, so that she makes her daughter hate her, so that the daughter can marry and abandon her lower-class origins. And then the famous final scene of the film, the marriage goes on in a big building with a big glass door, and from the outside, mother just observes the scene. I think this is a utopia, it is perfect. Perfect family is created, the observer is reduced to a pure gaze. Which is why the horrible thing, the most anti-utopian thing is when we become aware that the scene there is space only for our gaze. You remember, a thing years, some two years ago, I think, there was one of these famous photos of some tribe in the Brazil jungle which allegedly uh, didn't yet meet, the and you have this famous photo of there painted skin and just shouting, looking up at the camera. This is the paradise disturbed that was horrible for us. This utopia accounts for two further phenomena of our recent culture. First, why is the Darwinist reduction of human societies to animal ones? The explanation of our human achievement in the terms of evolutionary adaptation, why is it getting so popular? Pop scientific texts abound in journals and reviews reporting on how scientists succeeded in explaining apparently crazy or useless human practices as grounded in adaptive strategies. Why useless luxury? To impress the potential sexual partner with our ability to afford such useless excessive luxury and so on and so on. In this way, scientists suggest that, again, a quote from Weizmann, that we might yet have a chance to orient ourselves to be led over and above our animality. If the subject has a nasty habit of fooling himself all the time, we must bear in mind that nature is never mistaken. Salvation will come in our being, in our being animal body, genes, neurons, and all the rest of it. So, whispers the cognitivist in the, in, in the politician's ears to help them find their way. Follow the body, mort, monkey business, end of quote. Such reports are thus dreams of how to counteract the growing dysfunctionalization and reflexivity of our so-called postmodern societies, where we can less and less unthinkingly rely on inherited traditions to provide models for our behavior. Animals don't need any coaching, they just do it. Second, this fantasy explains why we obviously find it so pleasurable, To watch endlessly the specialized TV channels, the animal life documentaries on these channels like Nature, Animal Kingdom, and so on, they provide a glimpse into a utopian world where no language and training are needed. A harmonious society in which everyone spontaneously knows his, her, their roles. Another quote from uh, Weizmann, Man is a denatured animal. We are animals sick with language. And how sometimes we long for a cure. But just shutting up won't do it. We can't just wish our way into animality. So it is then as a matter of consolation that we watch the animal channels and marvel at the world untamed by language. The animals get us to hear a voice of pure silence. Nostalgia for the fish life. Humanity seems to have been hit by Cousteau syndrome. Reference to Jacques. This is why the case of National Geographic, the journal even more than, the TV channel, I think is so interesting. Although National Geographic combines reports on nature with and human societies, the trick is that it basically treats a human society, usually some exotic community, a tribe in the midst of Sahara or even a small town <coughs> in the United States, as an animal community a community in which things somehow work, where, again, everyone has his place and is in his place. And since the basic inconsistency of human being is the discord of sexual relationship, no wonder that one of the key elements of our fascination with the animal kingdom concerns the perfectly regulated rituals of mating. Animals don't have to worry about all the complex fantasies and stimulants to sustain our sexual lust, they are able to, here Weizmann produces a wonderful place, animals can have sex ahistorically, as we could <laughs> The last quote, between men and women it's pretty messy, the big disorder, not at all as it is with animals, where everybody seems to know perfectly well how to do it, how and with whom and where. And that's without the manuals, without the dating services, without any of it. It's enough to make us jealous. The animal world has realized that human dream of sex without a backstory, sex without history. We would be happy to put down our books and get straight to the point of what exactly it is to have sex ahistorically, end of quote. Examples like this indicate that an approach to utopias which leaves behind the usual focus on content, on the structure of a society proposed in a utopian vision. Perhaps it is time to step back from the fascination with content and again reflect on the subjective position from which such a content appears as utopian. The phantasmatic narrative always involves an impossible gaze, a gaze by means of which the subject is already present at the scene of its own absence. The catch is that when the subject directly identifies his her own gaze with this object gaze, the paradoxical implication of this identification is that the gaze as object, the stain in the picture, disappears from the field of vision. And This would be, I think, the Lacanian notion of utopia. A vision of desire, which functions without what Lacan calls object small a, the object cause of desire with its twists and loops and so on and so on. This here, if I may be a little bit critical, I think even Marx basically gets caught into this trap. He admires capitalism, but is aware that there has to be an excess, surplus profit, whatever. And again, his dream is a society where we get rid of the excess profit, But, how shall I put it, things function, explode even more, even more uh, productively. So that's my first idea of a utopia. And of course it's a critical point. If anything, when we imagine capitalism and the end of capitalism, going over to communism, we must be very careful not to fall into this trap, into, you know, implicitly adopting the position of this pure gaze, well, the price we pay for this position of the pure gaze is that, again, the, the obstacle, the paradoxic element which is at the same time obstacle and access in the object of our gaze, the object small a, disappears. And we have this myth of a perfectly functioning machinery. Again, like, exemplified in the animal kingdom. Now I want to pass to the next figure of utopia, which I like even more or not even more, more, because, again, if you ask me, I hate these channels, these animal kingdom channels. I think they should be prohibited. <laughs> they are obscenity, I shall put uh, But uh, you know what? Historical utopias, I think it's very interesting into how much energy is invested in them. Historical utopias about possible alter- alternatives. Recently, I read... Some uh, two, three books, I became fascinated with the topic of the fall of Rome. Not the big epoch of Rome it's typical how this also reflects our historical moment because you are not, but if some of you are old enough, you may remember that after the end of the Cold War, America is the new Roman Empire, what was popular was the great era of Roman Empire Caesar you know, all the series, even Caesar, uh, Rome, and so on, Caesar, August, uh, and so on. Now, typically, with a little bit more complex situation, American <laughs> empire in danger, the, uh, the, the historical interest has shifted onto that strange, weird era of the, of the, uh, somewhere from late fourth or even fifth to seventh century. And uh, it's interesting how all our Dilemmas are projected into it. Like you have the pseudo-leftist, I claim, multiculturalist version which celebrates the disintegration of Roman Empire, which tries to downplay, A, the violence of attacks on Roman way of life and the, uh, let's call it in you know, a maybe Western Eurocentric way, the fall. In the level of civilization. And I think one should be honest here and don't play this game how it was just a peaceful tradition into more pluralistic multiplicity of kingdom. No, it was a total catastrophe. I mean you can you can demonstrate it by very simple archaeological data. For example, if you look at the structure of a not even in the center, even in the province of a typical from 2nd, 3rd century Roman house, ancient Roman house. First, most of the roofs were already with, how do you call it, with tiles, not just straw. And point two, you always find scraps, some kind of letters and so on. So, some elementary literacy was present even with the lower classes. Point three, most interesting, you find relatively high quality compared with earlier and later times, pottery, amphoras, and so on, was even more important and we can determine it because they were all marked with signs where they were produced from totally different parts of the empire. Like, it was normal for a farmer in North Africa to have a pottery from from Marseille and so on. They were high quality mass-produced things. If you go to the 6th century, A, all traces of literacy among lower classes disappear. I mean, these are interesting things. For example, you know that one bordel was also frozen in time in Pompeii. What's interesting is what they found on the wall, uh, numerous obscene drawings, or the best fact of my life, stupid, it is like this, written obviously by ordinary customers, prostitutes themselves, and so on. This proves that literacy was something commonly shared, also for totally secular obscene reasons. You find nothing like that in the 5th, 6th, 7th century. Literacy was strictly limited to, not not even to to high classes, my God, you probably know that Charlemagne, Charles the Great himself was illiterate. He tried to, but it was strictly limited to church. Point two, all exclusively uh, farmers' houses, 5th, 6th, 7th century. Text roofs or whatever, no tiles, be extremely low quality pottery, locally produced, so, but uh, where comes uh, the dream? I noticed, it shocked me so much, how, for example, if you want to study ideology in historiography at its purest, read a book by Ward Perkins, The Fall of Rome, it can seduce you because almost the entire book is about uh, pottery, archeology, span and so on. It just uh, tries to make, it just tries to make the point of how this was really a tremendous fall in civilization. Okay, what's the point? Ah, The point uh, gets incredible, because uh, it focuses on, and then I started to read other things and discovered that this is the focal point of Western Eurocentric, uh, racist, anti-Oriental imagination. This idea, they they try to locate precisely, exactly the point when things may have gotten wrong. It's you, not you, I mean the Greeks, Visan is the guilt of everything. But you know what was the situation in the late 5th, early 6th century? Austro, uh, sorry, Visigoths ruled Rome, Visigothic Kingdom. They united Rome and even held part of southern France and so on, southern Gaul and so on. The great figure was uh, Theoderic, the king. Then he ruled all this like from uh, 493 for a couple of years on. And uh, what uh, what happened then is that uh, Justinian army was invaded throughout the Visigoths and that's within this racist scenario. That's the ultimate catastrophe. Because you brought in the Slavs, brought some you guys. <laughs> yes. Uh, no, I, I'm proud a, no, 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 I'm proud to. No, no, no. i proud to admit this. <laughs> God! Not only this. I mean, for example, Turkish Empire. No, everybody knows what was the problem with Turkish Empire. It was very efficient in the late 15th century. It was the most modern everything. Then they were too tolerant. They really. Played, uh, uh, played the game properly. If you joined them, become uh, Muslim, all the high places were open to you. So uh, something happened, I think, in the late 60s, early 7th century. One of us, a Bosnian, Slav, Mehmet Pasha Sokolovic, became the great vizier. The end. Yeah, <laughs> no, I totally admit it. No, but what I'm mean gonna say is that how much, so the you know what's the dream here? It's a wonderful, it has its beauty, racist dream that without the we, the Orientals, Greeks, without the Balkan to cut a long story short, without we invading and ruining it, Charles the Great would have happened already in the sixth century, there would have been no dark ages. Because it is true that Visigoths were so fascinated by Roman culture that they didn't try to ruin it, they tried just to incorporate themselves into it. At the same time, they were much more aggressive, vital, as they put it. I don't know what this means, but whatever. So the dream is the following one, and incidentally, this was the original Axis Berlin-Rome. This was Hitler's great dream also, historical. that we would have had this uh, reunion of Roman civilization which was still alive with German vitality which would bring it out of this letter and so on so we will have a resuscitated German Aryan the nice thing is that even the name Aryan fits here because not in the sense of the Aryan race but in the sense of you know Arius that Arianism is the early Christian uh, uh, heresy uh, uh, Visigoths were Aryans. It sounds nice, nonetheless, to a Nazi, <laughs> no? So, you see, the idea is that's where things went wrong. And then I discovered, you know, that this is a big obsession of right-wing culture, already, already at least from the middle of 19th century. The key text is here one of the most popular German novels for boys, this kind of a the German James Fenimore Cooper, uh, called uh, Felix Dam, Struggle for Rome. It depicts these Visigoths as a kind of a nibbling tragic greatness. They knew they can save Rome, but then they are defeated, but they heroically take their defeat and so on. All this German fatality and so on. And then I I discovered that there are even a couple of... uh, A couple of science fiction novels like, if you are interested, Sprague de Comp, Less Darkness Falls from 1941. The story here is that the time traveler from our time goes back to Theodericus, gives him good advices, he wins over decadent us, Balkan types, Greek slavs, and Western civilization is safe, totally different, flourishing Western civilization, and so on and so on. what I find so fascinating here is that how a book, basically, on the decadence of Rome, on how everything was from purely archaeological book, towards the end, all of a sudden this dream explodes. How things... And, of course, Felix Dan was then uh, celebrated, his high point, his books were reprinted all the time during uh, Nazi Germany and so on and so on. Why is this a utopia now? Now you will say, okay, but maybe it would have worked. Maybe we, Greco-Slavs, Balkans, were primitive. No, now comes that. what is, why is this vision utopian? You find the same utopian mistake in another book that I was reading, which is more simplistic, liberal, anti-theological. Charles Freeman, The Closing of the Western Mind, The Rise of Faith and the Fall of Reason. Again, it goes into, it's this classical, naive, liberal, enlightenment book. Greeks and Romans, good guys, even if they were religious, they didn't take it too literally. They allowed reason, you could criticize God, empirical test hypothesis. Then the crazy, dirty Christian comes, Christians come and ruin everything. And again, it's incredible how even in this book then, I was so shocked. Towards the end, in a footnote, he squeezes in the same utopia. He says, maybe if the Visigoths were to remain to rule Rome, maybe, maybe, we would the reason the Western region would survive. Why is this a utopia? It misses a point, which now I will try to convince you of. Without dark Middle Ages, no modern science. Why? Let me very precise here. The thesis of this guy, Friedman is that... Uh, Again, in late antiquity, uh, uh, Aristotelian secular empirical reasoning disappears. We have this fanatical, obscurantist, middle-aged, anti-irrationalist theology. And then reason makes a return with Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas is the guy's hero. For him, Aquinas is the return of reason. But, my God, if you know a little bit about... uh, uh, About... uh, origins of modern science. You know that it wasn't Aquinas, it was the platonic returns, precisely with people whom we know uh, as usually as voluntarist decisionists and so on. The origin of science is not this rational vision of uh, ordered universe, it's dun scotus. uh, You know this voluntarism, when you say, if God wanted it even uh, two and two would be five and so on. Uh, why? Because we have to be very careful what kind of reason really returns with Thomas Aquinas. It's this uh, Aristotelian reason, which, and this we should never forget, which is the reason which is, let's call it, a continui- uh, theological reason in continuity with our everyday common sense. It's the notion of a close, well-ordered universe from lower to higher, teleological order and so on and so on. Precisely in this kind of reasonable universe there is no place for modern science, which is why incidentally the Pope, which greatly disappointed me, uh, the uh, Benedict, the recent one. I don't know where does the rumor come, even some of French guys like Philippe Solers, whom I don't like, claim the rumor is here that he is a great theologist. I was so stupid and read his book on, on Jesus Christ. It's so stupid. No, he's not a great theologist. His, his theology reads like, uh, like uh, the other one, the Polish guy, John Paul II theater pieces. I mean, they are so bad that even in Poland, I was told, where they celebrate him, they graciously avoided the topic of, uh, of his place, no? <coughs> but maybe 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 there is hope for maybe he wasn't totally bad because did you read that wonderful note that now his sainthood is delayed because they discovered that throughout his life up to his death he wrote letters to and regularly visited and she was visiting him an old flame laugh from Poland, from when he was young. <laughs> and now it's so obscene, the Vatican committee said that will had to inspect all the letters if there are any traces of shit there. Only then, uh, OK, but let me go more serious. So what I'm saying is that Benedict, you know, in that well-known attack on Islam, when he tried to present Islam as irrational, decisionist, uh, whatever, God's will, religion, against more reasonable Christianity. But no wonder, then you should just read him closely. For him, Darwinism is irrational. Why? Because things just happen in a totally contingent uh, way with no purpose. When, when he speaks, the Pope, about reason, he speaks about this Aristotelian, uh, Aristotelian theological reason. So again, the paradox is that in order to create the conditions for modern science, this, as they call it, spontaneous Aristotelian teleological reason, our world is a meaningful, well-ordered totality, you know, gradually from lower to higher, and so on and so on, this has to be destroyed. And for this, the so-called Dark Ages were needed. Which is why now comes my little bit of... Uh, theological historiography, which is why I think we should absolutely rehabilitate. I hope they will accept it. I propose now to Verso, you know that revolution series, where they were crazy enough to publish by Robespierre, Mao, and Trotsky. I propose them to do Tertullian as a big leftist figure, progressive. Uh, You know what is Tertullian known? Even if you don't, you've heard at some point. The idea is that he was... The, the most crazy of irrational, that he said that in famous credo quia absurdum. I believe it because it is absurd. Now people usually read this as the assertion of this total madness. Proof faith just sticks to it, even if it's totally irrational, and so on and so on. But wait a minute! I did something very simple. I looked into this famous passage. It's from his. Uh, it's from his uh, on the flesh of. Christ. And you discover first, as it it is usual, with this well-known quote, that, of course, Tertullian never said this, no? He said something much more interesting. He said, he he wrote, it is certain because it is impossible. And replace impossible with real, Lacan says. Impossible real, it is certain because it's real. Oh, our guy. But okay, here is the the entire quote. The Son of God was crucified. I am not ashamed because it is shameful. The Son of God died. It is immediately credible because it is she. He was buried and rose again. It is certain because it is impossible. In, uh, it's certum es quia impossible in Medellin, this last word. The first thing to bear in mind here is that Tertullian was absolutely not an opponent on reason in his own repentance. He emphasized that all things are to be understood by reason. Quote, Reason, in fact, is a thing of God. Inasmuch as there is nothing which God, the maker of all, has not provided, disposed, ordained by reason. Nothing which he has built should not be handled and understood by reason. So he was absolutely not, in this sense, an irrationalist. He even showed a deep respect for great pagan philosophers. Another quote from De Anima, of course, we shall not deny that philosophers have sometimes thought the same things as ourselves. Tertullian even called Seneca, Saepe Noster, almost one of us. So one should reject the popular reading according to which Tertullian advocated a crazy irrational belief into something obviously absurd, something that runs against our reason and the evidence of senses. The quoted passage from On the Flesh of Christ is part of a polemic against Marcion who, dismissing as absurd the notion that Christ can be embodied in a human flesh, reduced Christ's incarnation to a mere phantasm. Christ didn't have a real body, (laughs) he didn't really suffer. The measure which makes the belief in full reincarnation appear absurd is thus not logic, but custom, convention. Not reason as such, but common wisdom, the space of what is conventionally acceptable. It is when measured by this standard that the death and resurrection of Christ appear impossible. Impossible is here meant rather in the sense of, how can you do a horrible thing like that? It's impossible, aren't you ashamed? The idea that God himself can die in pain on a cross, humiliated, punished as a common criminal, this is impossible dangerous, shameful, absurd, and so on and so on. Now you will say, but nonetheless, Christ's resurrection is impossible in a much stronger sense. Not logically impossible, but it breaks the basic laws of what we perceive as our material reality. But here I think we should say that this is what science is doing all the time. All modern science is on the side of this it is certain because it's impossible. You see, what's my point? You must have this attitude, like science is on the, si- on the side of side of Groucho Marx, who says, you know, in one of his films, he's caught lying and says, I give you my word, it's true. Then the person said, but I see. And Groucho Marx says, okay, whom do you believe, your eyes or my word? Mm-hmm. I mean, science is this, you don't believe your <coughs> eyes, your eyes tell you objects move like this, quantum physics tells you something totally different. You must, this basic ontology of modernity, which here I greatly appreciate, of course, a figure like, uh, a figure like Quentin Mayassoux, you know, that follower of Badiou, who I think developed very nicely this idea of radical contingency of natural laws, not only contingency in the sense that they allow for contingency, that they are not totally deterministic, but also contingency in the sense that they are contingent. Natural laws are like this, like why does an object fall with this uh, with this speed and so on? It could, you know it's always some totally contingent element, it could have been otherwise, it could have, it can be totally turned around or whatever. N- uh, you cannot do a kind of a rational deduction of natural laws. Here, if I may give a slight friendly critical remarks to Alain Badiou. Here I don't quite agree with his notion of mathematics as ontology. Maybe ontology, but not science. I think that uh, what disappears in Badiou's vision of science as mathematical formalized is that in science, you always, in modern science, you always have to have this minimal exposure to the contingency. Let's take... Science, like quantum physics, which apparently, you know, denies objectivity, our very measure creates uh, the result, but nonetheless, you need a moment of measure. Well, you don't know for sure what what will appear and so on and so on. So, so uh, what I'm saying is that, again, in order to get at the modern science, we needed the dark age, so-called dark ages, to, as it were, clear the table from this commonsensical ontology. And again, this disappears in that utopian vision of, oh, without the Balkan-Greek-Slavic alliance, we would have... No, we wouldn't. We would have some very stupid Aristotelian conservative world. We would have, if you already have this pornographic book there, my new monstrosity of Christ, we would have some kind of a John Milbank universe there, I would say. (laughs) Some kind of a, this kind of a Aristotelian, organic, slightly modernized Christianity, we wouldn't have modernity. Modernity means this radical contingency, and uh, here Mayasu does something wonderful which also brings in the topic of miracle. That's how Mayasu as miracle should be read. Uh, uh, his theory of namely he says that he proposes may I assume a wonderful distinction between uh, uh, near, between uh, between uh, 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 between, uh, between change and virtuality Change is something which is not wholly determined but it's nonetheless options one of the options within the space of previously determined possibilities, no? Chance is like, take the elementary example, you have a, a die, dice, you throw it, and chance is one of the six numbers. Even if we, we if, of, of course, we know that really it's not chance with infinite calculations, we could have done it, but even if we accept that it's a chance, it is still a chance one of the six. A chance is just width of the six, but the set the matrix of possibilities is predetermined. For Meyashu, virtuality means that something new emerges which was not even in this, in this, how should we put it, uh, temporal, eternal structure of what may, of what can happen. And Meyashu claims that this is what we perceive as miracle. And insofar as for Meyasu, God is the, another name for the highest being which guarantees this logic of the principle of the sufficient ground. For, insofar as when something radically new happened, it's perceived as a miracle, miracle which means outside the rational order guaranteed by God, which means, and that's a beautiful conclusion, that uh, quite on the contrary to what Christians Christians think, every miracle is a proof that there is no God. That is exactly the opposite. Miracle means. The order of whatever transcended big other rational order doesn't cover reality. Something radically new can emerge. So again, it is against this background that we should read this uh, so-called dark Middle Ages tradition. Let me go on. Uh, Maybe we should relate this to two types of stupidity. We have, maybe I already said this every very brief, some, some, two years ago, uh, you know, we have two types of stupidity. One stupidity is the stupidity of usually hyper-intelligent subjects who don't get it because they take things too literally. Like, it's, I don't know, sometimes, but I'm not saying that I'm because of this hyper-intelligent. Uh, you know, like, when somebody asks you, how was your day? You are stupid if you take it literally. You're supposed to say, oh well, and then go on. And uh, uh, sometimes you have wonderful results with this literal stupidity where you miss the background. For example, the greatest maybe anti-military novel, the Czech classic, Jaroslav Hasek, The Good Soldier, Schweik." Isn't this the most wonderful stupidity in the sense that you abstract the background common sense? You know, he was sent to the front and when the Austrians started to shoot, you know what he did? He ran between the trenches and started to shout, Don't shoot, there are people on the other side. You no, know? this stupidity of you take things seriously. And it's wonderful how I read that. So you can see that Alan Turing, you know, the Enigma guy. He was extreme an extreme idiot, I read somewhere in this sense. He simply didn't get it, all this custom background. Then we have the opposite stupidity, which is precisely the stupidity of the big other. The stupidity of people who are so much in this, embedded in this commonsensical thick background, that they simply cannot distanciate themselves from it. The example of this stupidity would have been in detective novels, The Companion of the Big Detective, Hastings, Watson, and so on. He is this kind of commonsense uh, stupidity. My point is that... Uh, uh, that uh, this is what happened in the Dark Middle Ages. The the rule of this second stupidity, this common sense stupidity, was broken, so that the space for this creative stupidity, where you are really too stupid to get the, to get the background, and in this way missing the background can invent something new. Okay. Now, if you allow me just a little bit more, now comes at least the part which is, for me, the most beautiful. Uh, uh, I think that if there is a writer who was stupid also in this first sense, it is Franz Kafka. What he does is that he precisely, how do put it, he presents the first type of stupidity, which is a very logical stupidity, as something customary as the second type of stupidity. He knows how to present as the most common thing this purely logical, but, crazy universe, which ignores all the rules. So, no wonder, I will do it now, you can find the whole text in a short essay published by me on Lacon.com on, on Kafka and his last poem, sorry, his last short story, Josephine the Singer. I think no wonder that I agree here with Fred Henson, Frank Kafka was the one who gave us one of the most beautiful communist utopias. It's again about animal kingdom, but slightly different. It's not not animal kingdom, it's not national geographic. It's his very last story, Josephine the Singer or the Mouse folk. Incidentally, already the translation I claim is false. Folk is German folk, but in German folk is people. It's typically how the translation, they wanted somehow to, to, rend, you know, to render it more populist and so on. It's not. It's Mao's people. They're people. It's people's republic. It's a communist society, my God. What is so beautiful about this story is that, A, it's the last story by Kafka. He knew he was done. He knew this is his last thing. Point two, uh, uh, it's the allegory of an artist, the role of an artist in society. But what's so interesting is that there is none of the usual Kafka stuff, in you know, no existential nightmare, obscenity, and so on. It's a very modest story about a sing- uh, a poor people of mice. And Josephine, their hero, a singer who even doesn't sing very well. She's just piping. But what's the role of this piping? just together, the people. A short quote. Since piping is one of our thoughtless habits, says the mouse, uh, mouse the narrator. one might think that people would pipe up in Josephine's audience too. Her art makes us feel happy, and when we are happy, we pipe. But her audience never pipes. It sits in mouse-like stillness, as if we had become partakers in the peace we long for, for which our own piping at the very least holds us back. We make no sound. It is her singing that enchants us, or is it not rather the solemn stillness enclosing her, her frail little voice. End of quote from Kafka. So this last line makes the key point. What matters is not her voice as such, but the solemn stillness, the moment of peace, of withdrawal from hard work that listening to her voice brings about. Here, the socio-political context is crucial, I think. The mice people lead harsh and tense lives, difficult to bear. Their existence is always precarious, threatened. And the very precarious character of Josephine's piping functions as a stand-in for the precarious existence of the mice people. So, I quote here Fred Jensen. Josephine is the vehicle for the collectivity's affirmation of itself she recla- reflects their collective identity back to them. She is needed because only the intervention of art and the team of the great artists could make it possible to grasp the essential anonymity of the people who have no feeling for art, no reverence for the artists. In other words, as Jensen concludes, Josephine causes the people to assemble in silence. And here the story becomes beautifully, properly communist. So again, you have a bad artist, no specificity, just her voice, she sings, gathers the collective, but the point is that the silence her voice creates, and for this reason she is not charismatic, the central comical part of the story, if you're ready to remember it, is how Josephine took, takes herself too seriously and she wants some special privileges, greater <coughs> federation and so on, but she doesn't get it. she is treated totally, as a, totally as an ordinary, totally as an ordinary person. when at the end she disappears, no problem. her disappearance is unnoticed and this, I think is a beautiful vision of some kind of communist utopia of a radically egalitarian communist society, which is why Kafka, for him, we humans were too much marked by super-ego, so she had to imagine this society as animal society. Here is now the final quote from Jameson. It is perhaps the high point of Kafka's tale and nowhere is the icy indifference of the utopia of democracy more astonishingly revealed than in the refusal of the people to grant her this form of individual difference. Insofar as Josephine causes the essence of the people to appear, she also causes this essential indifference of the anonymous and the radically democratic equality to emerge. Utopia is precisely the elevation from which this species escapes forgetfulness and oblivion. It is anonymity as an intensely positive force, as the most fundamental fact of life of the democratic community. And it is this anonymity that in our non-utopian world goes under the name and characterization of death. So again, I think that this is, it's crucial if you want to have any presentiment of what a communist utopia would have been. And it's, uh, again, it's not a story about rich people. It's a poor, desperate group of people gathering in anonymity. And the the artist is not the great genius. It's just something totally arbitrary. Who through her sound creates the silence, as it were, the silence of this anonymous, egalitarian gathering. And I think we have our own. Because as I entitled my text on Josephina, is the Josephina if. Kafka's texts were to be written in another country 10 years later in Soviet Union, the title should have been Josephina, the people's artist of the Soviet mice Republic. That is to say, <laughs> uh, it's just this uh, gathering together in a ritual. Now I know what I'm talking here. I think that the first, okay, now I will maybe shorten it up a little bit. The first important element of communist culture, here we should drop radically all liberal, uh, liberal, uh, liberal constraints, is that such a gathering where precisely you lose your identity, you just immerse yourself in a collective and so on, such a, if you want, pagan gathering with its inextricable mixture of sacred and obscene, where individuals should be fully immersed into a crowd, joyfully abandoning their individual critical minds, where passion should obliterate reasoning and so on and so on. This is something that should be done. We shouldn't be afraid of it, which is why, far from thinking then, what we find in rock concerts is somehow reactionary that we are manipulated. We are manipulated, but that's not all. This kind of collective gathering should be here. Why? Because now I come to my my, uh, second point. In what such gathering does to our lives It's not really, and this is what Claymstone develops wonderfully apropos of that Platon of Utopia, Trevenburg, that uh, what we, what this kind of drowning in collective produces when the show is over, is not, of we are all like the same zombies. No, what we emerge as afterwards is some kind of a, uh, how should I put it, uh, freaks with each, of, uh, freaks with each of us, his or her own uh, idio- his or her own idiosyncrasy, and it is here that uh, that uh, proposed his idea of how communism would look as a society. It's, it's like uh, the, imagine people where you know maybe you have a little bit of this dream in, if you saw that uh, you can take it with you, Frank Capra. But you know this idea of, maybe even in Dickens, of these crazy large families when, you know, one is is a madman thinks in Napoleon, the other one is cutting himself, the third one is dancing clumsily. They're all total madmen, crazy men, but somehow each enacts his, her madness, but they they sometimes, they sometimes, uh, they sometimes function together. And I think that's that's the other thing, that uh, in a communist society, like, you know, like, you can have your own idiosyncrasies, you can meet, mix red wine with coke, that's my private scene, I like <laughs> it in Germany, this is the most tasteless thing you can do, no? You can, I don't know, you can prefer Daphne du Maurier to Virginia Woolf, which I do, and incidentally, Darian Leader convinced me, I think Daphne du Maurier is a greater writer than that that boring snob, uh, Virginia Woolf. You can, I don't know, you can only have sex on a hot radiator. I have a friend who likes to do this. Don't ask me why. Do whatever you want. So we have, we have these three elements. The, but the third element which fits perfectly is that when you, when you play out this collectivity, when you enact your idiosyncrasy, this doesn't drown. This liberates your free mind universal code reasoning. This is why it always attracted me. I know how manipulated this is, but there is something in it. You know, this famous, famous uh, communities of half-crazy half Greeks, uh, computer programmers, how the idea is their mind works perfectly, but it is half an idiot with his own, her own idiosyncrasy and so on and so on. So my final example would have been, and this is, I think, where at least I always fall, fall, fall for interest. Something the most beautiful almost communist utopias for me is it is uh, science fiction films or uh, not even science fiction, films but the origin is the novel Theodore Sturgeon's More Than Human from 53, still the best. But even today we find echoes from uh, Heroes, the ongoing TV series, to X-Men to the lowest one i don't like it the league of extraordinary gentlemen this idea of a group of of outcasts of freaks you know each has a certain i don't know one can move in space the other can read the mind the third one and somehow how these outcasts form a community and the community formed by this outcast, i think is a wonderful would be a wonderful example this this coming together of individuals precisely where you don't have to abandon any of your personal, personal freakishness and so on and so on. So again, I think that if you are looking for kind of a communist dream, although I'm not saying it's such a great series, I couldn't watch all of it, look look at heroes. here. So to really conclude, if you give me just two, three minutes, the conclusion of all this would have been that This has consequences for our innermost subjective attitude. Let me conclude with, I don't know if you know what this is, the third wave. The third wave was a famous social experiment at Palo Alto uh, at a high school there where uh, some teacher called Ron Jones made this experiment in April 1967. He wanted to explain to his students how could it have happened that Germans obeyed Hitler and ignored Holocaust. So, this he, Ron Jones, started with his students a movement called the Third Way. He convinced his students that the movement should have as a goal to eliminate democracy. He emphasized this main point of the movement in its motto, strength through discipline, strength through community, strength through action, strength through pride. However, after four days, Jones, the professor, decided to terminate the experiment because students became so much involved in the project that they started to denounce their colleagues, uh, that they don't really believe in the project. It, It got crazy. So, Jones ordered them to attend a rally and the next day and explained to them what really happened, that it was really an experiment and that now they can understand if even they could have been so easily seduced into totalitarian discipline, how was it that Germans were seduced by Hitler? To cut a long story short, I'm totally opposed to the lesson from this experiment. I think it's a big liberal uh, mystification. The thesis that we get here is this boring liberal, po- liberal Lord of the Flies poem, how beneath the civilized surface, we are all potentially fascists, the barbarian beast is lurking in all of us, and so on and so on. But I think that uh, what, uh, uh, the the reason I disagree with this experiment is that uh, it constructs a certain opposition, to put it very simply in the, the terms of that old Adorno, in which Adorno participated study authoritarian personality versus liberal personality. I think that uh, precisely uh, that, I think that the trick of this experiment is that they blur a certain crucial line. There is a third type of discipline, which is not liberal society, it is a collective discipline, but for that reason is not a totalitarian discipline. And I think that this is why all liberals like so much such experiments. The, I think the experiment itself was a mystification because where is the third term? Something is missing. What is missing? Look, uh, 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 let me read this mottoes again. Strength through discipline, strength through community, strength through action, strength to pride. I'm sorry to tell you, but if this describes uh, uh, an emancipatory, revolutionary community, I'm sorry to tell you, I totally subscribe to it. What is wrong with this? Strength through discipline. My God, if you are poor and don't have time, don't have money to buy arms, of course you need discipline. Strength through community, of course. My God, workers unite. Strength through action, of course. Strength through pride, of course. We should be proud. You see the, the mystification. The mystification is that it pretends to cover the entire field. If it mystifies in the sense that it renders invisible, a third option, a type of intersubjectivity which precisely breaks out of this alternative, fundamentalist and so on, and liberal liberal individualist. And this is why I think that we should start dreaming now about such communities. First, They already exist, I take quite seriously. when Marx says how we should look for the germs, for the beginnings, first signs of a new society in our society. Yes, precisely, in this kind of emergency state, small communities, communities where freaks gather and so on, there is something unique in these communities. They are disciplined, collective, but at the same time, your idiosyncrasies are allowed You have discipline but without fundamentalism and so on and so on. So I think that, uh, and again, they can be even very naive, like, again, imagine when a group gets together certain artistic projects, certain creative projects and so on, how things function there. Again, this community of freaks. I think that we should start imagining, practicing this kind of communities, this kind of communities. I think that maybe this would have been a true cultural revolution to develop and it can be done. This is what, when people ask me, but what can we do do together, sorry, what can we do today already for communism? (coughs) Okay, we cannot yet make the revolution, but I think, uh, uh, so incidentally it's even clear. I think, with now, I think now it's clear that capitalism will manage very well this crisis and in half a year they will say okay okay the worst is over and so on but but uh, this is how I am ready to accept the youth notion of subtraction if it's subtraction means create this kind of uh, collective space which is the space which paradoxically combines collective immersion which with allowing for freakishness and so on and so on, Uh, this kind of spaces, wherever we can create them, they are necessary. Because I think that, again, at the level of collective life, it's crucial to create communities which are neither liberal individualist, throwing people together, nor this kind of uh, 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 so-called fundamentalist commitments and so on and so on. All I wanted to tell you is that spaces like that are possible. We can start. The problem is that, and with this I will deal tomorrow, and don't be afraid, I will not repeat all jokes about Starbucks. The problem is that more and more we are getting uh, pseudo-candidates for this collectivity, like precisely Starbucks and so on. This pseudo-collective spaces offering ourselves. Which is why I think that if you go to a... to a a theater performance, to Queen Elizabeth Hall, and then browse a little bit in a bookstore and take a coffee there. No, this is not not a communist experience. (laughs) This is is the worst. This is the worst. So more on this uh, tomorrow, thanks very much. (laughs)